This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we discuss education, gender, and sexual health. My guest, Marnie Summer, has helped develop puberty books for boys and girls in low-income countries. To date, these books have been developed in seven countries with almost two million copies distributed to girls and boys. And it really is super important to us that each book is developed in that country because I feel very strongly that the only way it will be meaningful to that country, to the girls in that country, to the teachers and government, is if they feel it really reflects girls' experiences and their own societies. Marnie Summer is an associate professor of sociomedical sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health, Columbia University, where she leads the Gender Adolescent Transitions and Environment Program. She is also the president of the nonprofit Grow and Know. In our conversation, she discusses how she navigates being both an academic and development practitioner. Marnie Summer, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, it's great to be here. So soon the Grow and Know organization with which you work will be launching a book for girls in Kenya to teach them about puberty. Can you tell me a little bit about what this book intends to do? Yes, absolutely. We're very excited. We've done books in a lot of countries, so we're excited to finally have an edition in Kenya. The aim of the book, which is targeted primarily at 10 to 14-year-old girls, so really end of primary school and sometimes early secondary, depending on you know which country they're in in the school system, is to help them understand what's happening to their body as they go through early puberty, their first menstruation, to try and remove some of the fear and the shame and the embarrassment that we've found in studies girls frequently feel at the start of those significant body changes uh, to help them feel more confident and empowered about what's happening and to encourage them to seek out guidance and information from older sisters, mothers, parents of some caregivers, teachers, or healthcare workers if they have something more serious going on. And you said that this book has been incorporated into many different countries. Which, which other countries has this book and your work been involved in? So we started a number of years ago, I'd say 2009 in Tanzania. We did our first girls puberty book, which came out of some research I did trying to understand girls' experiences of menstruation and schooling and what some of the barriers may be for them as their bodies start to change and they have to manage their periods in school environments. Um, We then went on to do similar books in Ghana, uh, Ethiopia, Cambodia, and then a couple years later, Um, We did a book in Madagascar, and Pakistan finished up about a year ago. And then other people have um, adapted some of our methods to do a book in Laos. And Save the Children has done books in, I can't even remember which countries, I think Uganda, um, maybe Vietnam, Bolivia, Malawi. So the books are spreading in slightly different variations, um, but they're spreading. And what is your method? So our method is there's sort of multiple phases that we go through. We try to work very closely with the Ministry of Education, or sometimes it's the Ministry of Health as well, and other key stakeholders in a country. So um, my little teams will spend about a month uh, when they first get to a country. The, The foremost and most important thing is making sure that the Ministry of Education and and local stakeholders actually wants a book and thinks it's useful. Um, Once we have that 
sort of blessing to go ahead and that it's something that would be useful and meaningful to them and to, they think, the girls in their society. Um, we spend a few weeks getting to know the key stakeholders, getting their inputs, gathering relevant policy documents, looking at the school curriculum, figuring out where we should go do the research. Um, and then the team spend about three to four weeks, first in a more urban environment, and then three to four weeks in a more rural environment, doing participatory methods with girls. Um, we do the project, we do the research with older adolescent girls, usually 16, 17, 18 years old, because our aim is to have those girls reflect for us um, once they've gotten through puberty, what they experienced, what their recommendations are for other girls who are going through puberty. We have them write stories about their first menstrual period, what their, uh, you know, who they talked to or didn't, uh, how they felt, um, the advice they have for younger girls coming after them in society. Um, and then we do some key informant interviews with adults, with teachers, with parents, religious leaders, trying to understand the world around the girls going through those experiences. And, and all of that gets incorporated, the stories, the myths, uh, the nicknames girls have for their periods, uh, the basic body change content that you need during early puberty into a draft written content. We then take that written content back to all the key stakeholders. We make sure they all have reviewed it, have given us suggested edits. Um, then we go hire a local illustrator, a local translator, a local publishing company, um, with the idea that we really wanted to be grounded in every way in that country and in the economy in that country, um, we get a mocked up version uh, that has all the different illustrations. And that's always a fun process because sometimes we get illustrations that maybe we think won't fly with the ministry. So we go back and forth. Um, but we get the translated illustrated version. Uh, and then we go back to all the key stakeholders, we get their inputs, we field test the book with 11, 12-year-old girls who are phenomenal. We spend hours with girls going through every page to make sure each picture is right, that the wording's right, that they understand it. Um, and all the books are bilingual. They'll be English and a predominant local language on each page. Um, and then once we've got everybody's inputs, we go back, make all the edits that we think are the most important ones or the most people suggested, and then we finalize it and submit it to the government for approval and, and so on. And then does typically do the governments then distribute it to s schools across the nation or do they do some piloting? Um, so it happens differently in each country. The method we, or the model we've generally used, because I do this sort of on the side of the other things I do as a faculty at Columbia University, and I don't have a lot of free time for it, but um, we, we, pi we, we usually publish around 15,000 copies to start that I call seed copies or pilot copies. We give those out to all the different NGOs, the UN agencies, the ministry, people who want to try using the book. And we gather some small evaluation data, feedback. One of my biggest issues is even though we've had so many people look at each version along the way, I never want a book um, to go out there that in any way could get a girl in trouble for reading it. Um, and since the idea of the books is they don't need an adult, you can hand them to girls directly. Um, they can read it on their own. Their sisters can read it. They can they share it with their brothers, their parents. So the idea is to really get them into girls' hands. And I want to make sure that if they take that book home and a parent sees the pictures or reads some of it or can't read and only sees the pictures, um, that they for sure are comfortable with the content. Um, and so that's why, it, and we've never had something bad happen. We've only gotten positive feedback. Once the book gets approval from the government, 
Um, it gets scaled in all different ways. Sometimes the government will ask UNICEF or UNFPA or another organization, DFID, in some countries to support more scaling of the book. So they will order it and distribute it through their programming. Sometimes NGOs come to us um, and ask and do big orders or small orders. So it just depends on the country. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's, it's obviously not you sitting at Columbia University writing these books. This is very much grounded in the context in which the book is supposed to be distributed in. So I want to ask a little bit about some of the differences that have come out of these participatory methods that you just explained. So, you know, how, has, how have the books looked differently across different contexts? It's a great question, and it really is super important to us that each book is developed in that country because I feel very strongly that the only way it will be meaningful to that country, to the girls in that country, to the teachers and government, is if they feel it really reflects girls' experiences and their own society. So um, some of the things that that differ fundamentally across the books is the menstrual stories. So in the middle of every book, we have five or six stories written by girls about their first periods. Um, Those are totally different because obviously girls in different countries have different experiences. So, you know, usually there's some stories written by girls about having an accident on a uniform or on the chair or some really mortifying experience that either sent them home from school or made them, they sought out some help or went and hid. Um, but but then there are differences, like, for example, in the Ethiopia book, um, which I didn't think the government would approve, but they did. There's a story a girl wrote about how her father saw she was washing a menstrual cloth. Um, he didn't believe, he thought she got her period because she'd been having sex, because that was sort of a confusion around menstrual periods, and wanted to beat her. And then her mother intervened and protected her, and the girl was fine. And those kind of findings came up in other countries, but Ethiopia was the only place where we actually had a story like that, and that got included in the book. Um, We've gone on to do boys' puberty books in some countries, and similarly, uh, the stories reflect very differing experiences that boys have. There are commonalities, such as peer pressures and um, alcohol and sort of all sorts of other things. But um, the specific stories, I think, are often my favorite part of the book because they so capture the uniqueness um, of the countries. And then the nicknames the girls use for their periods, which are in the girls' book, those always differ. The myths that we have at the end of the book, similarly, they differ. We have a Q&A section, which um, comes from questions we collect directly from girls and boys. Sometimes those are the same across countries, which I find is one of my sort of ways of seeing that the world really is a small place and we're all the same. Um, but then there's always unique questions to uh, a particular country that those kids have that, that maybe they don't have in another country. And then other small ways they differ that one probably wouldn't pick up on as much if you weren't involved in the creation of the book is, is wording choices. So uh, in Tanzania and, and other countries, we've called um, girls private areas, girls secret areas. But then in Ghana, which was the next country I think we did after Tanzania, they said, why are you not using the word vagina? So, you know, each country is comfortable to some degree with some language and not other language. Um, and, it, you know, my feeling is I want the books to scale. I want the Ministry of Education to be a partner. So we also compromise where I feel it's acceptable to compromise in order to get that level of approval. And then other things we push back on a little if we think they're really fundamental and should stay in the books. Such as? Well, such as um, content around that menstruation is 
related to reproduction and a girl is now able to get pregnant um, and that it's important to have that in the book. Sometimes that wording has to be tweaked. Some countries, you know, I think we have language around a girl shouldn't get pregnant before she's 18. And then in another country, it's um, before a girl is eight or after a girl is 18, she can start to think about, you know, they're just small wording things, but that governments get feel particular about in terms of how we're expressing um, what's appropriate mm. and what's not appropriate. Um, and in Kenya, there were some myths that there was really different myths that came up around, I think it was boys trying to persuade girls um, about having sex and what your menstrual period it was. And I think that was not a myth that people particularly wanted. So, you know, we just tweak different things depending on these are small changes. We keep the fundamental uh, content of the book. And I mean, across countries, I mean, it's interesting to think about how context varies. But what about within countries? Because some of these countries are ethnically diverse, religiously diverse, culturally diverse. So how do these books sort of account for that richness within countries? So really great question. And this was something I was guided on the first time we did a book in Tanzania. And it was not my instinct. And I, my colleagues, Tanzanian friends and colleagues in the publisher were absolutely right, as to be expected and not me. Um, my original vision when I first went to Tanzania and was doing my research, which led to this first book, was Oh, well, I, I love the idea of the power of stories. And my original idea was just to have a book of stories, forget any content. I thought it should just be older girls' stories to younger girls. And we'll collect stories from all these different tribes and we'll put it in the book. And um, that will be really, you know, culturally relevant across this country. And then I came to spend more time in Tanzania and realized, okay, there's 120 tribes, so that's going to be really hard to do. The second thing I realized is you can't just give stories. You need puberty content, so they are learning something. Um, but then I started thinking, okay, well, maybe we just have stories from, like, the largest tribes. And we try to include myths from certain tribes and other tribes and that the pictures should look like certain tribal outfits versus others, although it's not that different in Tanzania. Um, but, but what the Tanzanian said to me, which was super wise, and I have followed this advice in every other country, is you are, they said, Marnie, you are never going to get it right. If you try to depict any tribal group versus another, you're going to offend somebody, you're going to be wrong. Um, and it would be much better if you just develop kind of a generic book, not generic in that you can pick it up and use it in New Jersey or, you know, another country necessarily, but generic in terms of it reflecting the average experience of a girl or a boy in that country. So you don't try to make it specific to one tribal group. You don't try to pull out particular tribal beliefs. Um, you really try to make it um, sort of that I mean, average sounds not interesting. It's not meant, but I just mean sort of hit a sweet spot in the middle where you're just trying to be generic to that country. Um, and one of the things we try to do when we field test is oftentimes we'll field test in Dar es Salaam, let's say in Tanzania. And Dar es Salaam is such a mix up of different tribal groups um, that I think you have a good chance of people from all different tribal backgrounds seeing it and reviewing the content. Um, and knowing that you're hitting it in sort of the right place, hopefully. And I mean, in Dar es Salaam, that, in my understanding, is an urban center. What about some rural areas in Tanzania? Well, the data collection happened in more rural areas and more sort of peri-urban areas. So, um, so we collect the and we collect the content from kids in school and out of school because our feeling is the out of kids who may have dropped out or had different experiences, may have had different experiences of puberty that were not as good as girls, I mean, as kids perhaps who stayed in. So um, so we do have a rural and urban context for the data collection in every country. 
Um, sometimes, you know, we're a tiny budget operation. So in the past, we really only collected data from two sites um, and then tried to find sort of the average experience across that and what we learned from our key informant interviews and the field testing. But Pakistan, for example, was quite different. Um, given that it is a decentralized government, um, we were planning to just do the data collection in one region, as usual, because that was all the budget we had. And, and frankly, I have found there's such similarities across regions within a country. If you're not going to get into the specifics of, for example, a girl gets pulled out of school because of cultural reasons at puberty or something really dramatic, their average experience of their first menstruation and body change is not I've never found dramatically different no matter where we are. However, in Pakistan, politically, if we wanted government approval and buy-in and to be able to use it in schools, it was um, conveyed that it was really important that we have stories or content from every single region. Um, and so fortunately, UNICEF um, stepped up and helped support data collection in additional regions of the country. And some of the NGOs who work with this age group, we train them on how to collect stories so we could include stories from every single part of Pakistan. Um, and so that was done a slightly different way. To, to I don't know that the stories were dramatically different from the different provinces or regions, um, but for political reasons, and I very much respect that, um, it was the way to go in developing that book. It's really interesting to see how you sort of balance these competing needs of you know, wanting these books to be very contextualized while also wanting them to be, in a sense, quote-unquote, average to the typical student without being, without getting any sub-national group upset within the country, um, and then also managing these, the politics within each, within each of these ministries that you're dealing with. I mean, it just must be so sort of challenging whenever starting a new project in a different country. Yeah, you know, I think it is, but I will say, so after we did the book in Tanzania, which we I sort of started doing that research in 2006 when the topic of puberty and menstruation was pretty novel still, um, and I was trying to tell people I wanted to do this book, and, you know, people are like, why are you doing a book? People don't read in Tanzania. We're, we're not, a, we don't have a culture of reading. So then I would spend time hanging out in libraries and talking to librarians and saying, do the kids read here? If we do this book, are they going to read? And the librarians would say, look around you. Look at all the kids reading books. Um, so go do your book. Um, and so... So before we had a book to show people and before puberty and menstruation started to become topics that people were talking about, it was a little bit harder. I would say now, thanks to so many charismatic individuals who were out there getting menstruation and puberty into social media and the news and pushing governments, it's become a much more popular topic that people are starting to appreciate is relevant, is relevant for girls' education, is relevant for their health and well-being, and for boys' well-being, although we have, a, we, I think we still have a ways to go on the boys' front. Um, and so now when we go to a country and we show them the books we've done, and we always bring copies now, um, we tell them how this is something we have, we've done elsewhere, but it's very important that it be done just for that country, and that's what we wanted to do. Um, I think in some ways it's easier um, because they've heard of it, they know what it is. I think what, what we really want to do is not step on toes of other people working on that issue in a given country. Um, 
Yeah. So, so it's become, I would say it's less challenging. Pakistan was a little challenging, but I think there's really, oh, I think the other thing I was going to say is, um, you know, for all the dialogue around menstruation being really taboo, which it is, uh, in no way would I deny it's really taboo. It's a lot easier for people, particularly, I think, males even in government to grapple with than sex and parents. Um, it's less um, scary to them. And so I think when you say you want to do this book, we're not going to talk about sex. We're not going to talk about, you know, anything that will make their parents think that, you know, their kids are whatever. Um, it's somehow less threatening. And you find, I find that people just are, are, are really quite enthusiastic about it. One of the things that, that did surprise me twice now, because we did boys books in Tanzania and then again in Cambodia. And one of, we, we elicited for the boys three different types of stories when we do a boys book, we ask them about peer pressures, we ask them about body change, like wet dreams and erections, and we ask them about experiences of violence. And in both countries, because we know there's so much violence, gender-based violence, you know, in those societies when they get older. So in both countries, we had many, many stories about domestic violence. Um, and we put in, there's six stories in our boys books. And in both Cambodia and Tanzania, we put a story and an illustration of domestic violence that, you know, a boy writing about how this was happening at home and it wasn't okay. And this is what he thought a better resolution of violence would be. And in both countries, the government supported those books. Um, which really was eye-opening to me because I sort of thought it's one of those things that I think, frankly, in many countries, including the U.S., people want to sweep under the rug and pretend isn't really happening. Um, so I really applaud both those governments who I think recognize you want to start when they're younger and help them to be rethinking some of their sort of behaviors that, that they may engage in later. After you publish a book and it gets implemented in some of these countries, do you ever do follow-up? research to see sort of the impact that this new education is having in, in the countries? So, uh, yes and no. It's I just had a conversation with someone about that day. So we've been such a tiny budget operation, and I'm in a, a job that's much more focused on research grant money to not lose my job. So, hmm. and, and this hasn't been a topic that was easy to get funding for evaluation. However, we did have generous support um, from... Uh, the Learner Center, which is a center within uh, my school here, to do an evaluation a few years ago. And we did an evaluation in Ethiopia of the girls' puberty book and found, not surprisingly, that girls felt less worried, less scared, their knowledge levels went up. Um, what didn't change, which didn't surprise us, was that it didn't necessarily impact their school going. Um, but if you went to those schools, they had really bad toilets. Um, they weren't clean. They didn't have water. There weren't enough. The girls didn't feel safe in private using them. And so I think it would be a lot to expect to see that level of impact from a book if you're not doing a more holistic intervention. What we do in every country when we're doing the field testing is gather open-ended questions. We have the kids answer open-ended questions anonymously um, in response to their thoughts in the book, asking both sort of what was good, what, what did you like, what did you not like, um, who would you recommend read this in the country, what was interesting, and so on. And one of the things I found most interesting, and it came up right away in Tanzania, and I've since seen it come up in other countries, was when we asked who else should read this book, my expectation was that the girls were, would say, oh, other girls, which across the board in every country, they say every girl in the country should read this, make sure this book gets out there. So that we get everywhere. But what those girls in Tanzania also wrote is my auntie, my mother, my teacher, my father should read this book. 
Um, and that just is so eye-opening about what they may or may not, more like not getting at home and wanting to be understood by their parents and caregivers and their teachers. And so that was really quite remarkable. Um, the humorous part of some of the evaluations is we'll have, sometimes we'll have girls or boys say, oh, boys should never read our book, you know, or girls, should, you know, whatever. They'll always say, sometimes they say, oh, boys should read this, so they'll understand. And then others will say, boys should never see this book. And we get the same thing with the boys' book, like, don't let girls read. Girls should not read this book, you know. And then other times they'll say, everyone should read this book. So do the do boys read the girls' book and vice versa? So that's the idea, is that they will exchange. Although in the boys' book, we do have a page on menstruation and girls' body change and try to encourage boys to understand that, just as they are embarrassed about wet dreams and erections, girls are embarrassed about their periods and they should all be supporting each other. But one of my favorite memories, when we first did the Tanzania book and I went back for the sort of testing of it and was very nervous, we tried to do a little pre-post evaluation. This was years ago. Um, and I was concerned, you know, did kids take, we gave the kids the book one night and then they were supposed to come back the next day. Um, and I was so worried some kid was going to get in trouble at home or, you know, none of that happened. And as soon as we finished the post-test and the kids walked out with their books because they let them keep them, the boys surrounded the girls and started yanking the, the books out of their hand and started reading them. Um, and so, yes, they do want to exchange. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in Tanzania where this great little NGO called Child Reach Tanzania in Moshi had distributed copies of both our girls and boys books to their water sanitation clubs. And I went to visit the school and this little boy who must have been sort of come up to my waist, I mean, I think he was like fifth grade or sixth grade, whatever, um, his teacher was telling me that they read the books and he marched up to the female teacher afterwards and said, do you know I can get a girl pregnant? Did you know that? And, um, and everyone just started laughing and we thought, well, at least he knows that now, you know, maybe he didn't realize that before. Um, and she's like, yes, and don't go do it. Yeah. So, but then the other stuff that's fun and we, I would like to be doing more tracking of where the books go and more rigorous sort of follow up. And hopefully we'll do that in the coming years is, for example, I'll get a random photo. Someone will say, oh, I was walking by the market in Ghana and I saw a girl reading the book. Or I was driving home and I saw a bunch of girls standing together and I pulled up and they were all reading these books. So, you know, there's no way to capture that in a measurement sort of way. Um, but just to know that they're enjoying reading, that they're sh that it's building perhaps some kind of social support between kids um, and that they're having that private space to learn, which, you know, I always thought these books should kind of be like their version of Judy Bloom, but just a different reading level and different, more illustration to learn privately. And not to say you shouldn't go to adults for questions, but to have that private space to learn about their bodies. Are these books ever sort of supported by some of these larger organizations like, say, Gates Foundation or even the World Bank? I mean, you know, there seems to be, as you said, t teaching about puberty has become more, well, less taboo than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So, you know, are these larger organizations addressing issues of puberty? And if so, are they learning from your experience? Um, so I think some of them are definitely starting to address issues of puberty and menstruation. Um, I don't know that how many of them have actually ordered our books, and probably partly that's because I'm not running around countries reminding them that the books exist. Um, but I do know, for example, and this is not really about the books per se, but the World Bank 
is doing more menstrual hygiene management projects in schools, refurbishing toilets, and, and trying to sort of bring in some kind of information content. Um, USAID hasn't supported our books, but my guess is they're supporting puberty projects in a way they weren't before. Um, I hear, you know, a lot of the big NGOs have ordered our books. DFID ordered a huge supply of our books many years ago in Ghana, so the UK government. Um, and so, so I think that the donors are starting to appreciate um, that, that it is a critical age point. I think one of the issues, at least from the public health viewpoint, is that 10 to 14-year-olds generally aren't dying of anything. And so when you have limited public health resources, uh, you know, you go to where the most sick and the dying because you don't have enough money to go around. And so this age group was overlooked. And I think what the global health community is starting to appreciate is that early action and prevention and building girls' confidence, helping boys understand violence, doing all these things at this window before they engage in other behaviors is conceivably a way to prevent some of the later problems. And the other thing, which I think less people have picked up on, but I've had a lot of conversations with Claudia Mitchell, who's one of my favorite girls' education people at McGill University about this, is the ways in which the, the books could be, we're not there because I don't think they've been picked up by the education community this way, um, a form of literacy training. Um, kids love reading about body change. They love reading stories by older kids. And so I think if you're really trying to get a kid to read, and these books come in two languages, so they can for sure read their local language and then practice the other language that, like English or whatever it is they need to learn, it's a wonderful way to encourage the literacy and the, the reading. So, um, so I think that's an untapped way of using them from an education perspective. Uh, but I don't know, just a thought. So I'd like to just sort of switch gears slightly and ask a little bit about how you manage being an academic at Columbia University, as you said, and having to write grant proposals and teach courses and do research, while also wearing a second hat of being very involved in sort of a develop in development in creating these books in, in, in an NGO. So how do you manage these, in a sense, different yet related identities? Yeah, you know, a great question. Uh, I don't sleep that much, but um, <laughs> more seriously, I think they're, they're really, well, one, I love academia, but I'm a very practical person and not that academics aren't practical, but I think if I were not developing and partnering with people to do the books and seeing something pragmatic and tangible come out of some of the work I'm doing, I would be frustrated. Um, and so really, maybe it's even a little selfish that I feel this need to do the books at the same time. Um, what has been nice is there is a way in which the two interrelate in that um, when we do our participatory research with the youth, we get usually, except for Kenya, which we felt we didn't need to because there's actually a fair amount of data on girls and menstruation in Kenya. Um, but we, in most of the countries where we've done the participatory work with young people, there's really no data or very little data on menstruation and puberty or boys' experiences. Um, and so we've always gotten IRB approval and published, and because we collect more data that can ever go into the books, because the books are really not that long, and they're taken up with stories and, and myths and so on. Um, and I feel really a moral or an ethical responsibility to share all that we've learned from the young people beyond the books, and really to try and help gain attention for this age group. So in general, we'll publish an academic article from that data. It usually takes about another year to get that done. 
Um, but our feeling is that that then builds some of the empirical evidence that perhaps would then motivate that country, if they're not already motivated, to start thinking about that age group, to help people who are studying early adolescence to see the patterns of similarities and differences across countries, um, and start to sort of um, build or help or help contribute to what is, I think, starting to be a growing evidence base. So, so those are sort of the ways. Um, and then I do a fair amount of work with the UN, which I think has been wonderful, UNICEF and now um, UNFPA and WSCC and some other organizations in trying to promote the issue of menstruation and puberty. Um, and they're very, I think, generally in most countries, they will order large copies. And so it sort of weaves into that policy agenda and program agenda along with um, the academic side. And then I've also, over the years, been lucky. Oftentimes, it's a former student of mine who's trained in qualitative methods, who wants more field experience and is willing to be very low budget for an extra six months after graduating and partner with an organization or a research group in that country. And so they gain additional experience. And then at the same time, we get great data. Um, so it, they mm -hmm. interweave. And I mean, and not only do you wear two hats in terms of, of being an academic and say a development practitioner, but you also are working in a sense between two fields, public health and education. And, and how do you manage sort of navigating those very different disciplines? So I, early on, and um, I lean on those who work in education pretty heavily. I mean, I obviously have my own education experience, but that is very... Um, only a small contributor to understanding the world of sort of global education and girls' education. And um, from the very beginning, when I started doing this research during my doctoral work in 2004 and found on the internet probably one of the only people who'd written anything about this, which was Jackie Kirk, who was this girls' education scholar at McGill. But she also split her time half at McGill um, and half working with the International Rescue Committee on Girls' Education Projects. Um, and we found each other on the web and developed sort of a wonderful girls' education, public health, writing partnership and friendship and um, and did that for a number of years until, you know, we unfortunately lost her. Um, but that was really the seed that then got me to attend CIES for the first time. That was her suggestion. I met Claudia, her mentor at McGill, who's now sort of a mentor to me. Um, and... I took a girls education course at Columbia to better ground myself and met Fran Vavris, who obviously does a lot of work in, in girls education globally. And so have just been fortunate over the years to accumulate um, those who understand that field in a way I don't. I mean, today, one of my favorite people to go to is Nora Files, the head of the UN Girls Education Initiative. She's a wonderful resource to me. So um, I think I've just been lucky to find so many girls education experts or education experts willing to collaborate or answer my endless questions or mentor me in different ways, you know, which has been terrific. And I'm sure it goes both directions. I'm sure you have been a big help to educators to learn about public health issues? Yeah, I don't know, but I think there's so many intersections. I mean, you know, one of the fundamental things, which used to be part of my early articulation to public health people about why I cared about girls' education so much, which truthfully came more from my own feeling that girls had a right to education and, and to not have barriers exist that were discriminatory. Um, but the public health literature, which for decades has shown that girls' education improves population health outcomes, better contraceptive use, better vaccine rates, fewer children, um, healthier children. So there's so many population health benefits if we can keep girls in school. So I think um, there's always been that nice marriage between the two fields uh, that makes it really 
it makes it easier to bring them together. Well, Marnie Summer, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It was really a pleasure to talk. Oh, it was a delight to be here. Thank you for doing this. Marnie Summer is an associate professor at Columbia University and president of Grow and Know. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.